Good morning, church. If you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Daniel chapter 4. The great author uh, C.S. Lewis once observed, A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and as long as he is looking down, he can't see anything above him. While these words should serve as a warning for all of us in one way or another, they're also a perfect sketch of the disposition which the undisputed leader of the first world empire has carried through the first three chapters of Daniel. From his position on top of the world, King Nebuchadnezzar was far more concerned with the empire below him than the God above him. This week, I heard another pastor describe the the conflict between Nebuchadnezzar and God in terms of a boxing match, and I think that's a helpful illustration. As you recall, round one, when Daniel and his friends defied the king's order to eat foods forbidden by Jewish law, God granted them favor with the king. And after a period of time, they were found to be smarter, healthier, and better than all other wise men in the kingdom who followed Nebuchadnezzar's diet plan. In round two, Daniel did something that none of the other wise men were able to do. He revealed both the contents and the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's mysterious dream about a large statue which contrasted the frail kingdoms of the world with the everlasting kingdom of God. And at the end of chapter 2, the king acknowledged that Daniel's God was special. Then in round 3, as we saw last week, Nebuchadnezzar turned up the heat, literally. He built a 90-foot statue and decreed that everyone would worship it and threatened anyone who refused with immediate death. And since Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego politely declined the king's order, they were tossed in the fiery furnace, but they didn't die. As a matter of fact, God delivered them again. When they emerged, their hair was not singed, their cloaks were not burnt, and they didn't have the slightest smell of smoke on them. And after having a front row seat to that miracle, Nebuchadnezzar made an even stronger statement of affirmation about the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so over the last three weeks, we've seen Nebuchadnezzar move closer and closer to God, and yet, Despite a few close encounters and incredible experiences, his pride remained the primary obstacle which was keeping him from reconciling with God. And this morning, as we continue our series, The Gospel According to Daniel, we'll unpack the final battle between the King of Babylon and the God of Heaven. Let's start with verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. You could say uh, that when Nebuchadnezzar called a press conference, as he does here at the start of chapter 4, that the entire world was involved. At the time, his kingdom stretched from the Persian Gulf in the east to the Mediterranean Sea in the west, and when he spoke, they all listened. Now for comparison, uh, during COVID, for that 11-12 that week period where I was preaching and teaching exclusively on Facebook Live, 
I was holding the attention of a few dozen people for a few minutes every week. But when Nebuchadnezzar passed along a message in the 6th century, he had the attention of all people, all nations, all languages that dwell in all the earth. And by the way, based on what we've read in previous chapters, the citizens of Babylon probably weren't overly excited about any message coming down from the king. Here's a, a quick summary of his last three public decrees. One, since none of my wise men can interpret my dream, all of my wise men must die. That was in chapter two. Two, everyone will worship my golden statue. If you don't worship my golden statue, you must die. That was in chapter three. And then also in chapter three, the third one, this even happens sort of in the middle of a happy ending, he says, anyone who speaks against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego must die. So you can imagine this, this sense of, of, of grumbling and murmuring happening throughout the kingdom when they heard about a new memo coming down from the palace. You can just hear them saying, wait, wait. Did you say Nebuchadnezzar prepared another message? Oh, great. Here we go again. How will he threaten us with death and destruction today? Or maybe he feels like doing some bragging. Listen, I realize he's the undisputed ruler of our land, but he's just so conceited and so arrogant and so egotistical. I can't take another communication about his military achievements and his architectural triumphs. But surprisingly... Here in chapter 4, it was neither of those things. Look at verse 2. It seemed, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. You know, up to this point, Nebuchadnezzar had spoken fondly of the God of Israel on a couple of occasions after Daniel interpreted his dream, which was, had been plaguing him. Uh, previously, he told Daniel, Truly your God is God of God and Lord of kings. And after Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered from the furnace, he said to them, Blessed be your God. However, we, as we discussed last week, in these past encounters, Nebuchadnezzar experienced conviction, but not conversion. And, and as James 2.19 says bluntly, if you believe God is one, you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. And if you want to get technical, you could argue that based on their powerful experiences with God and the person of Christ, the demons have better theology than us. But they remain separated from God because they refuse Christ as their Lord. Now, saving faith is more than head knowledge. You can have the right doctrine with the wrong commitments. You can know a lot about God without knowing God. There is a difference between conviction and conversion. And so in these first three chapters, Nebuchadnezzar recognized God's sovereignty. He recognized God's greatness, God's power, and by contrast, he, he tasted 
his own depravity. He experienced his own weakness, but at the end of chapter 3, he was still offering praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, not the God of Nebuchadnezzar. But now, as we turn the page of chapter 4, something was different. And this difference is clearly seen as he continues in verse 3. It says, How great are his signs! How mighty his, his wonders! How his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Honestly, if you stumbled across those words without any reference to chapter and verse, you might link them to Isaiah or, or Jeremiah or one of the psalmists. You would never assume they were written by a pagan king. And yet, here we are. And for the rest of this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar describes the events which led to such a drastic change in his heart and mind. Essentially, he presents his conversion in four scenes. Let's walk through them together. In the first scene... Nebuchadnezzar was plagued by another unsettling dream. Just like chapter 2, the king's nightmare is, is central to the narrative, but unlike chapter 2, Daniel and his friends don't appear to be in any sort of danger with the king. And so in 4 through 18, Nebuchadnezzar recalled his dream. He says, starting in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So one night, as the king laid his head down on the softest pillow, in the comfiest bed, in a room with the highest ceilings and the fanciest trimmings, and a stunning view of the world's largest empire, he was completely restless. He had another dream which made him afraid. Verse 6. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. We don't know exactly how much time passed between uh, chapters 2 and, and 4. Daniel's not really concerned always with, with giving us references to exactly what year some of these events are, are taking place. But surely, no matter how much time has passed between the dream we read about in chapter 2 and the dream we read about in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar certainly hadn't forgotten how all the wise men in his kingdom offered zero assistance in making sense of the previous recurring nightmare, which overwhelmed him early in his reign. So why would he even bother with bringing these guys back in? Why would he even bother with seeking their counsel again? After all, as, as one commentator notes, to this point... They had only proven to be reliably, consistently, and magnificently incompetent. 
And so we, we, we can't say for sure why he returned to the same well, but we'll see here in a minute that this second dream is much more straightforward than the first. So we could certainly argue that Nebuchadnezzar was terrified because he already had a firm grip on the meaning of his dream already. He already had a good idea of what this dream was, was predicting in his life. And if that's the case, then his strategy of, of cycling through a parade of countless yes-men makes a little more sense. So if he had a strong feeling that danger was on the horizon, maybe he felt like one of these wise men could come in and give him a glass-half-full interpretation. Maybe they could make him feel better. But predictably, they fail. And I think that serves as a, a quick point of application for us and a reminder to not surround ourselves with yes men and not surround ourselves with yes women. You don't need a, a support system of family and friends who just blindly sponsor every good, bad, and ugly decision in your life. You need a circle who faithfully speaks the truth in love to you. When you're right, they encourage you. When you're wrong, they correct you. When you're uncertain, they pray for you. And although Daniel was in exile in a foreign land, he was that type of friend for Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 8, he was finally called in. Nebuchadnezzar writes, At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was called Belshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. So these two verses reveal that Nebuchadnezzar's relationship with Daniel was built both on fear and trust. Notice in verses 8 and 9, the king mentions both the Hebrew and Babylonian names of the prophet. But when he addresses him directly, he calls him Belshazzar, which was a name that was given in honor of his God. And Ligon Duncan believes this is an intentional move. He writes that you can almost see the king's insecurity here about the power of Daniel, about his connection to heaven, about his evident godliness and character. So he addresses him, not by his Hebrew name, but by his Babylonian name as a reminder that he had been renamed after his own God. And in doing that, he seems a little bit frightened about the kind of influence that Daniel may have over him. But then at the same time, Nebuchadnezzar expressed confidence in Daniel's ability to tell him the truth. In verse 9 he says, I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream and their interpretation. Out of everyone in Nebuchadnezzar's court, Daniel and his friends proved most trustworthy and faithful over and over because they spoke truthfully in all circumstances. And so in verse 10, the king described his dream to Daniel. He says, The visions of my head as I lay in my bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to the heaven. 
and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves are beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of heaven lived in its branches, and all flesh fed from it. Let's stop here. So the tree represents Nebuchadnezzar. Not a lot of debate on, on that point. The tree represents Nebuchadnezzar. But more specifically, the tree represents how Nebuchadnezzar viewed himself. Because he was overcome with pride, he fancied himself as the center of the universe. Like this tree, he was great. Like this tree, he was strong. Like this tree, he had power, influence, and control over the whole Earth's ecosystem. And notice too that verse 11 says the tree reached to heaven. And that phrase seems to call back to the Tower of Babel. In Genesis 11, all the people of the earth came together to build a tower that would reach to the heavens so that they could make a name for themselves. And Christopher Ash rightly observes that the purpose of that tower was tying the city of heaven, the city to heaven, and enabling them to rule the world like gods. It was not human beings wanting access to God. It was human beings wanting to replace God. They wanted united humanity, living in autonomy, making their own decisions, running their world with no need for gods and goddesses above him. The tower is a symbol of human pride. In other words, the same pride which got Satan thrown out of heaven, the same pride which got Adam and Eve removed from the Garden of Eden, the same pride which got all the people scattered at the foundation of Babel in Genesis 11 was coursing through the veins of Nebuchadnezzar. But a strong dose of humility was coming. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let them be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Now, did you catch that, that shift there in verse 15? The pronouns change in verse 15. The start of verse 15, the pronoun is it. And then in the middle, it changes to he, him. So we know this, this tree, it was a tree, and now it's a person that's being described. And that continues as we get to verse 16. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowest, lowliest of men. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. 
So this brings us to the second scene. Nebuchadnezzar receives a spiritual intervention. We aren't going to read um, all of, of Daniel's interpretation because he repeats many of the details uh, which we just read back to Nebuchadnezzar. But Danny Aiken lays out a, a straightforward summary of it in his commentary. Essentially, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, You, O king, are the tree. And like the tree, you'll be chopped down with only a stump remaining. You'll live like an animal outdoors in the fields until seven periods of time pass. All of this will happen to teach you a valuable lesson that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. But when you come back to your spiritual senses, you will get your kingdom back. And since God is gracious and loving and is quick to forgive and show mercy, you should listen to my counsel, repent of your sin, stop your wicked injustices, and show mercy to the oppressed. And if you do, God may be kind, and perhaps there will be an extension of your prosperity. And so in, in this, this moment that we see in verses 19 through 27, we, we witness a, a classic confrontation between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, which we should put in the same category as Moses and Pharaoh, Elijah and Ahab, John the Baptist and Herod, Christ and Pilate, Paul and Agrippa. You know, the common theme that runs through all of those situations is that the man of God grows larger and the man of the world shrinks down smaller. And there are several contrasts which are presented in this section, but the most striking contrast between Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar is Daniel's sensitivity and Nebuchadnezzar's insensitivity to the overarching message of the dream. When Daniel heard the dream, he was troubled. He was appalled. He was undone. Verse 19 says, Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. And he even observes the social custom of the Babylonian court and he tells the king, My Lord, may this dream be for those who hate you and this interpretation for your enemies. Daniel's initial reaction says a lot about his character. Although he was living as a captive in a strange land under the rule of a vicious king, he genuinely cared for Nebuchadnezzar. He, he genuinely wanted to see things happen for his good. But then if you look at verse 19 again, you see that Nebuchadnezzar was unfazed. He had the opposite reaction. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or interpretation alarm you. He said, hey, hey Dan, what are you so worried about? Relax. I can figure it out. I, I, I can find a way out of, of what comes next. Most powerful man in the world. Ligon Duncan explains the, the vast difference in their reactions to God's revelation says a lot about where they were in, internally. You know, Nebuchadnezzar at this point was deadened to the spiritual gravity of this message, whereas Daniel 
who wasn't even involved in the judgment of the message, was brokenhearted. And, and we should strive to emulate Daniel's example here. With our friends and, and family who are apart from God, our hearts must remain tender towards them. Even if their hearts are currently hardened to the truth of the gospel. All right, let's move to the third scene that we see in, in 28 through 33, where Nebuchadnezzar experienced a brutal humbling. Verse 28, all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of, of 12 months, God gave him a full year to write the ship. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Now, I hope that you can see the problem with this statement. I have built my kingdom by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. I'm the smartest. I'm the strongest. I'm the best. I deserve all the praise and all the glory. Nebuchadnezzar's staggering pride is in plain sight in verse 30. But unfortunately, while we can easily perceive the pride in others, in many cases, we often don't always comprehend the pride growing in our own hearts. And, and what, I, what I don't want to do as we look at this text is I don't want us to look at this text and say, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, you fool. You fool! How could you think you could win a battle with God? How could you come over so, so overwhelmed with pride? I want us to see that there's a little bit of Nebuchadnezzar running through all of our veins. You know, back in May, I had a, a fleeting moment where I was gripped with pride. And to be transparent, I wasn't overlooking a massive empire, which many rank as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, like Nebuchadnezzar. But I was sitting in my office, and I was looking through weekly reports, which provide statistical data on a few factors related to church health. And as I was surveying the information, I started highlighting the successes. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with, with doing that. I mean, honestly, we don't celebrate wins enough in church culture. All right, what you celebrate, you'll replicate. And so, so we want to celebrate the good things that are happening. But you must give God the praise and the glory for every step in the right direction. And unfortunately, in that moment, as my mind was thinking, wow, our, our, our weekly giving has increased every year for the last three years. And oh man, we've, we've added almost 30 new members to the church. And oh, we executed that event and we implemented those strategies and we created these partnerships. As my mind was thinking about those things, my heart was overcome with pride. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, I switched the pronouns in that moment. In that, that fleeting, passing moment, it wasn't, look at what God has done. 
It was, look at what I've done. And just like Nebuchadnezzar, for the next several weeks, I was brought low by God. During that time, I was preaching through Philippians 4. And on June 13th, I wrote the following reflection. For three weeks, I've been plagued by the Apostle Paul's statement that he has learned to be content. Because clearly his contentment was rooted in Christ. Whether he was dining with Lydia in her mansion or fastened in the stocks, the prison basement with Silas, he was content. Even though I've walked with Christ for 25 years, I don't have a category for this brand of radical countercultural peace in all circumstances. Yes, I trust Christ. And sure, I could write an entire book chronicling how God has been faithful in my life, but still, my mind is burdened and my heart is restless. These days, I'm experiencing a near constant anxiety over my pastoral responsibilities. And since I've never been to this place before, I keep asking myself, how did I get here? And the answer seems to be that I've grown content in the wrong places. I love my wife, but I lean on her more than Christ in many situations. I love my children, but I, always, I don't always trust their Heavenly Father with their providential care. I love my work, but lately I've been cruising based on my own self-sufficiency. And I love my God, but I've substituted social media, television, golf, and many other things for regular time with Him. In this season of spiritual dryness. May the only words on my heart be, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. For a few months, I experienced anxiety, worry, and fear like I've ever known. Never, like like I've never known. And I hated all of it. But I wouldn't change any of it because every bit of it sent me running back to God. James 4, 6 says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And when I became puffed up with pride, God graciously deflated my chest for my good in his glory. And he did the same thing for Nebuchadnezzar. As he's standing and, and surveying all of his surroundings, verse 31 says, While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, Men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until the Most High rules the kingdom of men, till you know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and he ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle feathers, and his nails were like 
bird claws. If you ever watch the show My Strange Addiction on TLC, you won't have any issue envisioning Nebuchadnezzar living outside, eating grass like a, a cow and having bird talons. But for the rest of you, there is a rare psychological disorder called boanthropy, which is reserved for human beings who believe they are cows. It's not common, but it does happen, apparently. But here's the point. With the flip of a switch from heaven, the mightiest king on earth became a groveling madman. And verse 32 says Nebuchadnezzar remained in the state for seven periods of time. And we don't know exactly what that means. Some say that means seven years. All we know is that the number seven is the Old Testament number for fullness or completeness. So more than likely, he, he suffered for the perfect amount of time. That's what the scripture says. He lived as a beast for as long as it took him to realize God was God and he was not. And when that moment finally came, we move to the last scene. In verse 34 through 37, Nebuchadnezzar tasted sweet redemption. Once his mind was restored, once his kingdom returned, Nebuchadnezzar wrote a doxology for chapter 4. And I want you to listen to these words together. He writes, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. He spent all that time looking down at his kingdom, looking down at others. And he lifts his eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me, and, and my counselors and my Lord sought me, and I established in my kingdom, still more greatness was added to me. Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of Heaven, for all His works are right, and His ways are just, and those who walk in pride, He's able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar was a murderous, selfish, arrogant, materialistic, idolatrous, cruel enemy of God, but God claimed his heart anyway. And his final recorded words in Daniel are, I praise, extol, and honor the King of Heaven because his works are right, his ways are just, and he humbles those who walk in pride. We've talked about how in previous chapters Nebuchadnezzar experienced conviction and not conversion. I would say that's conversion. Now let's talk about our final question, which we've committed to ask at the end of every chapter of Daniel. Where is Christ in Daniel 4? Well, verse 17 
says the watcher in the king's dream said, The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. And we should note that about 600 years after this, Christ was born in a stable. He was born into scarcity. He was despised and rejected. He suffered on the cross. But after the resurrection, God gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. In every way, King Jesus stands in direct contrast to King Nebuchadnezzar. And every other prime minister, president, and king who comes after him. Nebuchadnezzar was a mere man, Christ the eternal God. Nebuchadnezzar was sinful, Christ sinless. Nebuchadnezzar was merciless, Christ merciful. Nebuchadnezzar glorified himself, Christ humbled himself. Nebuchadnezzar aspired to sovereignty, Christ aspired to servanthood. Nebuchadnezzar exalted himself and was humbled by God. Christ humbled himself and was exalted. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, in in many ways, Nebuchadnezzar represents the worst of of humanity, and, and still he, in some ways, serves as a mirror for all of us, which shows us more of ourselves than we care to admit. And so, Lord, this morning, as we, as we come to your table and we share communion together, Lord, I just ask that you would show us the places that we fall short. You'd show us the, the corners of our heart where, where pride has made manifest, where pride is, is growing. You know, may we be a people who, who echo the words of John the Baptist when he was approached by his, his followers who were concerned about how big Christ's crowds were getting. And they said, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And John simply told them, I must decrease and he must increase. May that be the picture of, of our faith. May we be a people who say, let us decrease and let Christ increase. Father, we love you, and we thank you for Jesus, and we ask these things in his name. Amen.